And how do we begin to support each other and get through that? It's not easy because it's very chaotic at the start of a project because you're literally starting in a progressive design build model, as with any model, with a blank sheet of paper. It's just hard. You know what the problem is. You know you've got to do something, but there's nothing there. And everybody turns to you and says, swim. (laughs) And there you go. And so partnering fills in that gap that helps guide the team to create that safety net for everybody to feel comfortable so that they can go through chaos. The idea is that they can... You know, after forming, they can storm safely so that they can norm themselves and then perform. And it's a very magical process that partnering done right, if you will, (laughs) binds this team in a way that they can become a high performing team and that they trust each other through all obstacles. What they've done is they've learned how to now become hard on problems and soft on each other. That inverse of what used to happen traditionally in our system because of the contracting strategies. Construction Nation. Welcome to Lead with Trust. I'm Sue Dyer, and I've been on a three-decade journey to figure out how to make sure our construction projects succeed and produce some extraordinary results. My trusted leader journey has led me to work on over 4,000 construction projects worth over $180 billion. In this podcast, I'm here to teach you everything I've learned. One thing I know is that it starts with the leaders of the businesses and organizations that come together to build a project. If that's you, let's get going. Hey, Construction Nation, this is Sue Dyer and welcome to episode 56 of Lead with Trust. And this week, we have a guest that I'm excited to have you hear his thoughts and ideas about the gap that exists between contractors, designers, and owners, and how this plays out on our projects. Jeff Newmeyer is someone I've known for decades, literally, and he is the Chief Development Officer at San Francisco International Airport and also the immediate past president of Design Build Institute of America. And so I hope you'll enjoy this episode and think about how this gap is perhaps playing out on your projects. And uh, I think it's a time to maybe have a conversation uh, with everyone in the industry about things we need to do. And Jeff will give you some ideas in this episode for changing how we operate so that we don't have an inherent built-in conflict around risk. And so this episode is called The Project Risk Gap. So let's listen in. Well, welcome everybody in Construction Nation to episode number 56 of Lead with Trust. And I am very excited today to have Jeff Newmeyer here as our guest. He is one of my favorite people in the world. And I we've worked together for a long time. Our very first project was like in the ni- early 90s. Early 90s. Over early in 90s. Oakland, California on the post office parking garage. A long time ago. So we've been we've worked together on a lot of projects together. And uh, he, I will give more introductions later on, but I want to just welcome Jeff to Lead with Trust and thank you for coming. Thank you for having me, Sue. 
Okay. I always ask everybody a kind of a dumb question. So I thought I'd ask you uh, an insightful question. Like, tell us about your very first job you ever had. I, I don't know that story. Oh, my very first job or very first project? Which one do you want? First job would be good. You can tell us about your first project too. Oh, so my first real job, well, my first real job was actually a newspaper route. <laughs> so if you wanted to go that far back in time, um, I lived in, a, in down in the South Bay, Los Gatos, and I, I lived in a very hilly area. And uh, I took this route on, and boy, I'll tell you, it was a bike destroyer. And here's the reason why is because all the papers got dropped at the lower level, but the whole delivering of the papers was always uphill. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 that was the one part of it except there was one part of it that was different on Sundays the main part of the newspaper would get dropped down below the hill but I would always get the comic section remember there were always two parts to it that would get put together in a newspaper that would be dropped up at my house up at the top of the hill so I had this thing rigged where um, I literally would figure out I would rubber band all the comic strips like, you know, Saturday afternoon before I'd have to get up early Sunday morning and uh, I would get those all set. And so I would I knew there was no way I was ever going to be able to deliver both of those things together um, up a hill. So I would actually distribute the the uh, comic sections down the hill. And then as I came back up, then I would have to literally go to the door and then take those papers and back and insert them back in. But I was able to do it and I was able to do it always on one trip. And so there was a little bit of innovation going on back there is how can you deal with the challenge of uphill, downhill and added weight on Sundays? So that was my first job. <laughs> you were engineering your solutions already. <laughs> yes. And destroying, and destroying my bike too, boy. There is nothing worse than, than, than a heavy newspaper bag sitting all over your bike as you're <laughs> Yeah, Those I got are up. gone, right? They're gone, right? They don't, we, don't do, we don't hear about that anymore, right? <laughs> That's funny. I got up many, many mornings at 5 or 5.30 with my son who had two paper routes because he figured yeah. out that he could deliver the same diff two papers to basically the same people and earn twice as much money. I thought, yeah. okay, you're going to be fine in life. I don't have to worry about you. <laughs> well, it's a great gig when you're like 12 years old because you are making more, more money than any kids your age around. <laughs> <laughs> he did that till he got, you know, was 16 and could drive. So, <laughs> so let's jump in and talk about the project risk gap. Da, 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 da. Uh, you know, tell us a little bit about this. I know you and I've talked about this for years, but I wanted to share it with everyone in construction nation. Sure. And, and let's start off with that. Um, before we dive into that is that there's a lot of, um, talk out there about um, how bad construction is and it's caught and there's all these adversarial relationships and jobs always tend to end up in court and all this litigation and all that and there's a reasoning for all that but worse than that is that there's a reason for the way we behave no matter what the project delivery system is and it's nobody's fault it's a series of events that have occurred and, and it gets to this issue of a risk gap or what we call the owner's risk gap that they have to talk um, to actually manage through. And it's very difficult. And we might as well start off at the beginning. You know, construction has evolved through a lot of processes. And if we go back pre-1900s, the way contracting strategies, particularly, and I'm speaking mostly here in the United States, was that the contractor ultimately was responsible for everything, no matter how that information got to him. Once you cut a deal, you cut a deal for everything. It meant fully deliver whatever was in that contract. 
And if it didn't work, it was still the responsibility of the contractor. And so everything was always on that contractor, no matter what came up. Well, in 1918, um, the uh, city, uh, actually, the federal government took a contract to repair a dry dock. And part of the work and the scope of work for repairing that dry dock was to relocate a um, sewer system. And that work did get done and they had it relocated and they were working on that dry dock. And then suddenly, during a high tide, there was a lot of rain that came in. And all of a sudden, pipes busted everywhere and the water came in and flooded the entire dry dock. And so they put this company at this time it was called, I think it was Spear and Utilities or something like that. And told them that this was completely their responsibility because they're the ones that put in that sewer pipe and they're completely responsible. And they had done the inspections of that and they had found that there was a, a dam upstream that was diverting water that basically held back a lot of this waters that came through and created these head pressures throughout the rest of the sewer system. And it finally all just broke. And the claim from the federal government was that um, we hired you to repair the sewer system and the dry dock. And it was your obligation because the contract said you were supposed to go out there and review the site and, and have everything taken care of. And of course, Spearn sued the federal government saying, hey, it just wasn't on the design. We just did what we were told to do. Interestingly enough, the court sided with Spearn. And the court case essentially um, said that the owner implies a certain warranty when they put out a set of documents to take a low price on. So what we're saying here is, is that all of those contract clauses in people's contracts that say you should need to visit the site and take full responsibility for things in the way is not true. The implied warranty is the design that's shown on the drawings is correct. There's an implied warranty that comes from the owner that they can assume that for their pricing exercise. And that, that there is no responsibility on the side of the contractor who's providing the low price. So at the time, that wasn't such a big deal at the time, because typically, as we went through time, contracts began to move more towards the architects would actually be hired by both public agencies and private, and they would handle all the construction contracts. In about the 1950s or so, I don't, I don't have the exact science, but somewhere around in that this issue started up that the architects would hire these contractors. And what would happen is, is that the contractors would say, well, we just follow the design. So they would turn around and sue the architect. And because they couldn't sue the owner because the owner had hired the architect who held the construction contracts. And we began to see a process of where the architects gave up construction management. And we've heard about how the, you know, they, that, that architects and designers now only do construction administration, no longer construction management. Well, this was the start of it. So suddenly what happens is this risk gap now starts to revert back to the owner because since architects don't want any responsibility with contracting for construction, and this is pre-bonds and all that type of stuff, it now sits on the responsibility of the owner to hire a designer separately and hire builders separately. They hire the designer, they do the documents, and then they turn over, they imply that those are complete and turn them over for bid, and then they get a price on it, and then we move forward. Well, the, the gap occurs because the design team, architects, engineers, only have to work to a standard of care. And that's typical of most contracts. And a standard of care does not mean perfection. It means to the level of professionalism that is in that area of what is normally done for that type of project, given all the complexity and everything involved. So you can see what begins to happen is that an owner can easily then get into it, the idea that 
when the first change comes through request because there's a difficulty of something that occurs because of the design, um, there's a request for change. And it's upsetting because they're saying, well, you should have known our contract says you should have visited the site X or you should have gone through all this. And you know. well, the reality is no, they shouldn't have known, nor are they legally required to do as such. But that's um, there's this misunderstanding that occurs. Um, most of the time, um, you know, a lot of owners and architects are completely unaware of Spirit, and it, it's 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 there. It's just, and um, and so they take the side of the owner to try to defend that. And what would happen over time is that, and we've all been through this as we've been in the industry for a while, is we're in denial of entitlement saying you should have known. Of course, we all know what begins to happen is that uh, the contractor will refuse to begin to do work that they're not gonna be compensated for and the schedule starts to slip and now we begin to see claim schedules and and all sorts of things that start to happen as a result of that and bad behavior starts to ensue. As litigation continued to rise, uh, what happened is became the uh, really the beginnings of what we today call construction management, where it really became a process of where we would have very much formal processes for, for a contractor asking for direction on something that wasn't clear, what we call today the RFI, which is really, by the way, didn't really appear until after 1985. I think around 86, 87 is when those first started to appear. And then those would go to the designer and the designer would tend to respond with some response. And occasionally, more times than not, those would come back with the change order request. And of course, then we start this whole denial process all over again. And you can see what's happening here is just that it's one thing to make the design change, but you can see all of this process of where people are no longer doing the work, the costs are beginning to rise because there's the workers are still there, but they're not doing anything. And so what ensues after that then is, well, the contract says in seven days, you have to write me a letter and blah, blah. And now we get into a letter writing campaign. And we start this whole vicious cycle, which everybody starts to get angry at each other. They basically begin to take care of their own turf. You've got construction managers that think they're protecting the owner by taking the hard line because they're saving them money. You've got an owner who's now angry at the builder. You've got a builder who doesn't want to do anything for the owner because they're not being paid for it. And even to the point that sometimes it gets such bad enough that even the owner starts going after the designer and saying, what are you doing? You know, So you can see with all this fear, and I know, so you talk a lot about this, fear kicks in. There's no hope for trust at this point. Well, that was a, very much the way we were through the 90s. And you know, we were very litigious at that point um, because nobody would talk to each other. And what's sad about that behavior is that if you really looked at the cost of the direct cost of the changes, if they were just done in a collaborative environment, <laughs> it probably would have been 20% of what the damages that were actually being done. But you can see how the culture is different from the very beginning that a simple thing like entitlement and fairness isn't discussed. And it just evolves into something that is something it never had to be. Um, so that's how we got there. And that's how we have such division um, in, our, in the United States in design and construction. Um, we do know that there has been this division. We can see it in the productivity of our, the trade workers, for example. I know SIPE has done a numerous studies on production of the labor since 1964. Um, production, uh, as of probably five, maybe five or 10 years ago, was down about 40% since the 1960 high level of the point. And I know a lot of people will point to and say, well, it's because things are more complicated because of environmental laws and regulatory 
um, requirements. What's interesting about it has been separate studies on production of trades folks with the equipment, modern equipment today and access and things, they can prove that they are more productive than ever. So it's it's not right that they should be less productive. Well, we can obviously see why they haven't been productive. It's because those of us between um, the, the our stakeholders on one side for the owner and the trades, that whole part is broken. And that's what we, that's been the result of this is that the fact that we're not solving problems, um, we're beating each other up and being really soft on problems instead of really being good to each other and uh, and really hard on problems. And I guess my point of going through this and I think, you know, and talking with Sue about this, the reason why I think it's really important to understand is this is the why, why we've gotten to where we've gotten from and to realize that it's nobody's fault. It's nothing. It's not because we've got a broken system. It's not because spirits of bad laws, not because standard. It just is what it is. And all those were good things in place, considering um, the way we procured work at the time. So what's the solution to this? Um, and and. You know, that that's a whole nother discussion. One of the quick solutions was um, the advent of design build. Design build now puts the spear and risk away from the owner and puts it back onto the design build team. Now, what's different about that model than say that when the architect held used to traditionally hold a lot of the contracts is now the builders hold the main contract with the owner and then hire the architect as a sub. And I know there's always a lot of questions that come up. Can the architect be the prime with the owner? Sure, as long as you can come up with the the, um, the bonds, and and they they just can't bond for it, and so that's why now you see the uh, the builders take on that that lead role. It's probably pivots around the financial constraints and what's required to to go after it, and and you know rightfully so because they carry such a big risk. The dollar figures are higher there, but that puts the now the the responsibility of that gap to be managed by the designer and the builder. And that doesn't necessarily solve the problem, but it begins to enable the possibility of better behavior. And that's a work in progress still. So that's kind of that how that gap all works and how we got to where we go. So I'll, I'll leave it there. Hope you're enjoying the show. Every time you and your team step foot onto a construction project, you bring your business culture with you. For any construction project to succeed, there must be a high trust culture. It doesn't matter if you're in planning, design, construction, or startup phases. The more trust you bring and build, the better your results. I've created a free resource for you, the Trusted Leader Profile. So you can know exactly the level of trust you bring to your business and projects and what you can do to boost trust. You can grab that at sudico.com slash profile. That's S-U-D-Y-C-O dot com slash profile, P-R-O-F-I-L-E. And I hope that you'll remember that always high trust equals high performance, and it really depends on you. Now back to the show. So just to summarize for everybody, you know, it's the Sparin Doctrine, and, and just see if I say this right, Jeff, says that the contractor can expect that the documents are perfect correct, in a low bid situation. Correct. And the designers can expect that their documents 
designs don't have to be perfect. Correct. They're not going to be. So the delta between those two things is the owner's gap. There's this risk, which I call it a hot potato, because for years we've been trying like, who gets the hot potato? You know, is it the owner? The owner is trying to push all the risk in the contracts to the contractor or the designer. Designer is trying to push all the risk. We're just just like pushing this hot potato around. And uh, and eventually it, it turns out most of the time the owner ends up paying for it anyway. Uh, so that's been my experience. So how do we deal with this? And so I, I know that uh, Jeff has some thoughts on that too. That's a really good question. And I think we have to be honest with each other that there is a culture issue in our industry. Um, and it's not easy to fix because it's it's embedded in over 100 years of the way we've traditionally um um, worked and operated. And as I mentioned, design build is a way um, of dealing with this. Let's talk about different project delivery systems and how they try to address the problem first. I think um, alternative project delivery is a wide open way of doing things. Um, and let's just start with everything is better than a lump sum or low bid bidding. So let's just, everything's a step up. Um, CMGC is probably a, a methodology of alternative project delivery that a lot of people are used to the attempt there was to have the uh, general contractor present during the design phase to help be with the uh, designer. Um, that is an improvement because at least you can have a conversation, a relationship before a GMP is set. And so there's a conversation. So people are talking. So that's the beginnings of getting closer to solving the problem because you're having, they're there, they go through it. It doesn't alleviate the owner of the spirit because they're still under contract separately with the, the design team or the architect and separately with the builder. And so there is still a risk there. And it's still the responsibility of the owner um, to imply that those documents that they're taking the GMP price on, that they are buildable and they are correct. And so that still lies with the owner. But it's an improvement because hopefully there's less of them. And hopefully there's a, a culture there that exists. Um, so that's one step. The next step is what we call fixed fee or the, um, the design build. It can be qualification uh, or best value qualifications are considered similar to what's done in CMGC. Again, that's the next step or next advancement that creates a contracting strategy where the sphere now is put into the role of the design builder. Maybe. Maybe. Now, that was the theory behind the Design Build Institute of America when they brought, when they start promoting design build and became the organization that really represented design build done right, if you will. There is design build done wrong. And where things have began to take a off-road there is where things like bridging documents come into play or very prescriptive documents. And the reason why that that becomes a problem, you can see, is that if you have a prescriptive document or bridging documents, there becomes an implied warranty because you're taking a fixed price at bid time for this. And so that does open up Pandora's box again. It's again, a step in the right direction. It is completely appropriate if through a criteria's document, you can clearly communicate what your needs are, but as an owner, you have to be particularly going with your eyes wide open, knowing that your stakeholders haven't been present during the evaluation of the design that the price is being turned in. It's got to be eyes wide open. Their, their goal is to meet those performance criteria and whatever they come up with in that solution, you, you're willing to accept. Yes, as you move through the contract, you can play with that. Um, they've been very successful. 
um, design build done right on the fixed fee is a methodology. They're very good. I know in my past experience, I was involved in them with parking structures. They were very effective. Um, they worked out quite well. There's no issues unless you get to have an issue with the criteria that was established that the fixed fee was and the stakeholders begin to have problems with it. Then you open up another can of worms, which can become prevalent in really complex type projects such as hospitals or airports, um, those types of other projects. We've seen the emergence of a couple of what we call integrated project delivery system. One is lean construction, which is IP, what's called an integrated project um, delivery agreement. It's a multi-party contract where everybody signs on to share the risk all together. And at RIT, the, the subcontractors and designers put a portion of their profit at risk. And the idea is that that will incentivize behavior. Um, it's in the health industry, that's quite popular, particularly on the private side. Um, it seems to have worked out quite well, but again, it becomes it's, it starts to incentivize good behavior. Um, the next uh, another step that's kind of along those same lines is what's known as progressive design build, which is what we do at, at San Francisco Airport. And that's a methodology where the design build team is selected primarily off of qualifications. And then we enter the first phase of that project, whereas we, they, they get introduced to our stakeholders. And they're given, they develop, they, they have a project budget, but they begin to take that project budget and break it down into the, the different targets for different trades. They try to develop a scoping document that everybody believes that they can work to, that is reliable, that they can design to. And we set those targets with the scope along with a lot of other things. But essentially what you see is we're having, we're having a relationship now with no contract of scope, cost, and schedule in place yet. We'll have all the terms and conditions and all that, and people are still getting paid for that work. But the brunt of the contract in terms of scope, cost, and schedule is still open-ended. Then from that step, then you're allowed to progress into the design phase where now the design builder and the stakeholders all work together because they're incentivized to hit those targets. You might say that those targets look a lot like the GMP, but they, they are the GMP that we're targeting. They're just not in the contract yet. And so we're creating the safe zone for people to, to operate. And so they begin to uh, work through that process through completing the design ultimately to a GMP. And once that is done, then you move into construction with the hopes now that, um, that everything has gotten closer to perfect, if you will, in the design documents, although it's not going to still be there and there's still continues to got to cover some of the errors and omissions as you move to construction. But as that, that's the theory now. I'll, what I'm going to say about what I just talked about in terms of product delivery, none of those are a silver bullet any more than design bid build is either. Just understand that they're enablers of a behavior now that can change in a safe environment outside of the contract where you can begin to figure things before you put into a contract. And in other words, you have collective wisdom of all the parties involved and you can all look at each other in the face and say those are reliable and I'll support you on this. And there becomes the hard part, a really hard part. And that is not an easy thing to do. And so there becomes this layer that involves these relationships that are essentially want to follow traditional behavior, a culture of our industry. It's easy to get caught up in, and it is very hard to turn that. And so over time, what I know Sue has been intensely involved in this is the role of partnering and where it plays into all this. And where partnering begins to play the role is to break those barriers down or make an understanding of the things I just talked about so that people can begin to look at each other and start to build an alliance of aspirations, of goals better than just on time and on budget. 
And how do we begin to support each other and get through that? It's not easy because it's very chaotic at the start of a project because you're literally starting in a progressive design build model as with any model with a blank sheet of paper. It's just hard. You've got, you know what the problem is. You, you know, you've got to do something, but there's nothing there. And everybody turns to you and says, swim. <laughs> and there you go. You know, and, and so partnering fills in that gap that helps guide the team to create that safety net for everybody to feel comfortable so that they can go through chaos. The idea is that they can, you know, after forming, they can storm safely so that they can norm themselves and then perform. And it's a very magical process that partnering done right, if you will, <laughs> um, binds this team in a way that they can become a high performing team and that they trust each other through all obstacles. What they've done is they've become they've learned how to now become uh, hard on problems and soft on each other. That inverse of what used to happen traditionally in our system because of the contracting strategies. Um, and so. That has helped over time. Now, the last piece of this, what this does to this project team is because they've set their targets, there's a contract requirement always to turn a certain level of scope that's wanted for on time and on budget. But the team is also given an opportunity during that programming phase to say, hey, what if we want to do more? More chaos. But it's their chaos. And so once they've gotten above what's required as the bare minimum of the contract, we let them go to higher places. What are the possibilities? What are the possibilities if we all work together? What if we can really do things outside of the box and not solve the, the problems the same old way, but maybe a way that involves this total integration of the architect, the mechanical trades, the electrical trades, all to solve a sustainability issue? Well, what happens now is that the team begins to operate above the contract and they're operating in their zone. That is the, the zone of exceptional. And between the contract and exceptional, that environment has to be protected. And again, that's what partnering does, is it creates this protection inside that zone. It literally is, and I, I jokingly say this, is those of us that are in executive management, we have to learn to just stay out of it. Trust our teams as well. Given that safety net, our job as executives is to help the team know that you have control of your destiny. Now, obviously, if you get below contract requirements, I think it's a whole different issue and that's got to be solved. But ideally, what you see in this type of relationship is you don't see that happen. Um, you see the team's heads go down, not because they're necessarily in big, big time budget trouble. You see their heads go down because they just can't figure a problem out or they can't get high enough. And, um, and that's where we're at. So those are those tools that have come into play. Now, with all those tools in play, we're far from being done with the journey because the uh, the culture is embedded and it's a tough one and it can rise up. Um, I'm still guilty of it. You know, you can get a hot button issue that comes up and it's easy to flip back to where you were. Um, this is going to take years to get over. But through all this, you can always come back to trust. Um, trust works when we remove the fear. Um, it really does work. And, and ultimately, um, that's what this is all about. And it's it's everything about that power of trust. Um, but that's only gained when we can create these safe environments for people to dream big, where they have this purpose to do better than the bare minimum. That's what inspires people to be great. And people in this industry, um, they love what they do. They actually don't want to battle each other. They don't want to have to. It's just that they've been told and they were incentivized to act differently than that. We now have an environment that's more, more popular. We see great things beginning to happen in our country. 
Um, there's lots of fantastic projects that are achieving, you know, used to be just lead certified was good enough. And now you're seeing lead platinum projects pop up all over the place. We're seeing these things happen just from a, from a, uh, an environmental perspective, but we're seeing um, good architecture come into play. We're seeing clean water get to people that was years ago impossible to make things happen. Roads and bridges get built that are just spectacular. Educational facilities that really do impact uh, students' lives that are a better place for them to educate and learn and feel good about their environment. We're seeing these things begin to happen and we're putting a value on that. And so we're making progress, but we still have a road to go. It seems to me that um, this bad culture that we've had because we have this hot potato that never has really been dealt with. If you're an owner and you have a project, and I know I talk a lot of owners now that they, they say they don't have a choice but to use low bid. Would you have any advice for them to deal with this hot potato? Because it just ends up, especially owners that maybe don't have a lot of projects, they have one every once in a while, they hire a CM firm, and now they're going, what do you mean we have a problem? Sure. And and really it goes back to where we started at the very beginning of this conversation, I think, is to, you know, I we have to change design and construction away from being looked at like a commodity. Right now, outside of our industry, everybody treats it like a commodity. It's it's like buying an apple. Aren't all apples the same? All designers are the same? All contractors are the same? They're not. And I'm not saying that they're bad. They could be all good, but they're still not the same. And so they all have different values depending upon even your project types or where you are or locate. I mean, there's so many things that play into it. Um, and so we have to really start looking at our transactions in a way that we don't treat everything like a commodity and we treat it like a relationship. And the way that this can be expressed to people that aren't familiar with our industry is to talk about this on this risk gap that is out there, the Spearin um, doctrine versus standard of care, because what will, what the first thing will come back is, I wanna get a bid and I wanna know that that's the absolute price and have this price certainty before I ever start construction. Now, all you have to say is walk through and say, I, there's no way we're ever going to get a project done with the price that you've got. It's always going to have change orders and, and it's going to end up with even a progressive design build contract. There's no way out of that that it's going to happen. So we have to start with the fact that that price certainty that everybody's shooting for isn't possible because we don't have scope certainty yet. We don't get scope certainty on a project until the very end. So the price is going to always keep going up. So we have to make a choice here. Do we want to have a big problem at the very beginning of when we take the price together? Or do we want to have 90% of everything worked out, be closer to perfect so we don't have to go through those experiences so we can keep it in, a, in an arena where we can actually all be professionals to deal with it and have the appropriate contingencies that are reachable. And so my best advice is really to take people through the journey as I just described it, that there are these laws and this idea that that price is guaranteed, you know, certified, you can have reliability in it isn't really true. I, I don't want to speak, you know, out of, you know, too bad, but there's a lot of things in everybody's contracts that are not enforceable and the contractors know it mm -hmm. and they'll play nice till they run out of money and then they have no choice but to fight back. And, and again, it's nobody's fault that this gap got created. But I think if we can just take the time to explain this to even even you know your legal staff, your business and finance folks, executives, we, if we can explain how we got to where we got and what is really going on, it becomes understandable then. 
And I, that's really a great place to start. And I know that, uh, you know, getting really educated on that risk gap that we talked about um, here has really been helpful. Um, it's been helpful for me to describe it to other owners who have made the transition so that they can explain what the problem we're trying to fix. As I mentioned, none of this is a silver bullet. That's the only thing we've been trying to fix. It becomes an enabler to take that risk gap away in a way that we can now manage it as project managers, as owners, as builders, as designers. Um, and that's my best advice. Um, it's hard when people still want to treat it like a commodity. I don't have an answer for that. In the event that you do have design bid build, um, I can tell you that, uh, and I've been through that, and I, is that you get your partnering teams on as fast as you can from the very beginning even during the design phase when the builder's not on board um, so that everybody on the team can understand what's coming and describe it and have a plan for it and be able to hold at least the folks before the builder's on board, at least realize that when stuff does come up, that you're going to work through those things. Um, recognize that things aren't going to be perfect and recognize the contract's not going to totally be behind you to solve every problem. It's not all there. And so having those discussions up front before they hit and have those expectations aligned and a plan in place through partnering is a great solution as an alternative to uh, to switching to other project delivery systems. Um, it's a great starting place. All I can tell you is that when you get, if that works for you, you can imagine what it does <laughs> when you change project delivery, partnering changes, even everything into a whole different spot. Um, you know, you move from survivable to a higher place where you're actually not just at sea level, but you're on top of the mountain. Um, so, you know, there are possibilities, but that's my, that's my best advice. I, I love that from the sea level to, or maybe you're underwater even sometimes to yeah. the top of the mountain. That's, yeah. I think most of us aspire not to be underwater. So yeah, I, I, just, gonna see, I just got us to sea level, right? So, so, so <laughs> we, we can, we can, we can be there for, for another day. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jeff, for being here. Where can people get a hold of you? You can get hold of me at uh, my email is uh, G-E-O-F-F dot N-E-U-M-A-Y-R at flysfo.com. And again, it's Jeff dot at flysfo.com. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thanks, Sue. Okay, Construction Nation. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Lead with Trust. Will you do me a favor? If you think this episode can help anyone on your team or business, please forward it to them. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And your honest review, hopefully five stars, is much appreciated. Every leader who learns how to build their business and projects on a foundation of trust is going to reap the rewards of greater productivity, attracting the best of the best, enjoying your business more, and doing things you thought were impossible. If you want to know where you are in your trusted leader journey, I have a free resource for you. Please just go to sudico.com slash profile, S-U-D-Y-C-O dot com slash profile. And you can grab it there and find out where you are on your trusted leader journey. And so that is a wrap for today. Can't wait until I get a chance to hang out with you again next week. And until then, have a great day.